Hello. This sermon audio is a ministry of the Town Church in Fort Collins, Colorado. If you would like to learn more about us, how to connect, or how to support us, go to our website, thetownchurch.org. While listening to the Bible preached is a healthy part of our spiritual formation, it is not the whole picture. So, if you are not a part of a local church, we encourage you to prayerfully commit to a local body of believers where you live. We are glad you can join us, and we hope God uses the following sermon to reveal more of his glory to you. We're the town church. We, we're going to worship. We're going to worship together every week. We want God to show us more of who he is. That's, that's why we're here. Worship God for who he is, and we want to see more for God for who he is. And so I've been praying that God, by his grace, would do that. He'd reveal more of himself to us. We are going to continue our look through the Psalms. Remember what these are. These are this is poetry. This is Israel's songbook. These are these prayers of Israel, and it's, it's beautiful. It's born out of real life experiences. So as we experience things, whether it's corporately as we walk with the blacks or all our individual things, God's not left us alone, has he? He's graciously given us the book of Psalms to help us process. He's shaping us through them. He's still teaching us, even today, through this ancient songbook, today, he's caring for us. So, Psalm 62 is a, is a really fantastic song, psalm, and I'm actually concerned I'm not going to do it justice. So, let's, what my hope is, is that God is going to teach you through the Holy Spirit through Psalm 62. It's absolutely beautiful. So, if you have your Bibles, please open up to Psalm 62. If you didn't bring a Bible, if you don't have a Bible, we've got a table of them in the back in the corner. You can grab one of those. If you don't own a Bible, you can keep that one. That one is yours. We just ask that you would read it. All right, Psalm 62. As we read through this, be looking for how is God revealing himself to us? Like, who is he? I, want, I think he wants to show us that. I'm going to start by reading verses 1 through 2, but this psalm is different than the last couple of weeks. Last couple of weeks, we got like the situation, the difficult situation on the front end, and then as the psalm went on, it developed those circumstances. But Psalm 62, right out of the gate, is going to show us what our heart posture should be before God. And then the rest of the psalm supports that by showing us more of who God is. So it's a little bit different in flow. But let it sink in. Here's verses 1 through 2. For God alone, my soul waits in silence. From him comes my salvation. He alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be greatly shaken. Does that describe your heart this morning? How closely does that describe your heart? We often feel shaken, don't we? When we have the loss of relationships or wealth or health or whatever it is that we're putting our security in, when that's gone, we tend to feel shaken. Do you feel that now? If so, allow this to model for us how to sit before our God. For God alone, my soul waits in silence. From him comes my salvation. He alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be greatly shaken. This is, this is not a heart posture of panic, is it? It's not a, a scattered screwing around to find some sort of relief somewhere, somehow. 
It's not trying to convince God to care for us. Rather, it's a show of deep trust in God alone rather than the flurries of our own activity. It's a rich theological position of stubborn personal dependence on God himself rather than ourselves. It's a vulnerable position, isn't it? A vulnerable position filled with such conviction that silence rather than self-help is invited in. It's a fierce position. It takes some strength to have this position. It's a fierce position that embraces our reality of our inability and ignorance and recognizes our divine source of deliverance. The firm expression of trust in the character of God as our deliverer beyond what the noise of words themselves are able to convey. My, uh, my kids, like most of us, have a very uneasy relationship to water before they start to swim. It's, it's, it's can be really, really frightening. And they can tell me all day long they trust me, but until they actually let go of the edge of the pool and commit their little bodies to daddy's hands in the really deep water, it's just words, isn't it? Psalm 62 is modeling for us a heart posture that lets go of the edge of the pool, that when the rubber meets the road, truly depends on the rock-solid hands of God alone, our salvation, our fortress. We trust in God alone. We know this in the heads, don't we? Let this sink down into our hearts. We trust this. This psalm is going to batter this. Pound this in this morning. We need it. So notice this. This is not a silent waiting filled with nothing but peace and calm. As if we don't feel anything. As though the waves of the sea only ever gently lap against the rock. This silent waiting isn't some sort of Zen moment where you completely detach yourself from passions and emotions. No, this is a silent waiting in the midst of ferocious and painful circumstances. This is a waiting when the stakes are high when the emotion is turbulent, when the stamina is fading, when the waves are crashing over and over again with hurricane force, it's the raging circumstances described in verses 3 through 4. Let's read them, verses 3 through 4. How long will all of you attack a man to batter him like a leaning wall, a tottering fence? They only plan to thrust him down from his high position. They take pleasure in falsehood, they bless with their mouths, but inwardly they curse. See, the psalmist is experiencing prolonged attack, seeking to shake and to topple him, to bring him down. It's not an attack of swords and clubs, though, is it? It's a relentless attack of lies and two-faced interactions. It's a verbal attack. It threatens the psalmist's place in the community. His relationships are on the line, and the psalmist is wearing down. You see, the waiting for God in silence here is not issuing from a peaceful and calm experience, but from a raging and powerful storm. This is a powerful model for us. Even though the psalmist is experiencing the persistent attack to shake him, he still trusts in God alone. And yet we can sense the psalmist is starting to feel weary and threatened. Do you feel that? In there, how long will you attack a man to batter him? Are you feeling weary? <laughs> you feel like, I don't know how much longer I can go on this. I'm feeling battered. If so, these next two verses allow these to comfort you and to guide you. Verses five through six. 
This might sound a little familiar. For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence. For my hope is from him. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be shaken. Isn't this amazing? Verses 1 through 2 are essentially repeated. It's a stubborn, silent waiting, isn't it? The psalmist moves from declaring his soul waits in silence, verses 1 through 2, to now commanding his soul to wait in silence. Again, repeating who God is, our source of salvation, our hope, our rock, our fortress, and what God will do to keep the psalmist from being shaken. Unlike the attackers, God is not two-faced. I get the sense that the psalmist is reminding himself of these truths, of digging in his heels upon these truths, of wrapping his weary fingers even tighter around these truths, of pushing his heart back to the truth of who God is, even while facing a battery of prolonged attack that has a singular aim to shake and topple the psalmist. I get a picture like this. That's an imagery of feeling pounded by these huge waves of the sea over and over and over and over again. The the threat doesn't cease and the weariness sets in. But even there, what the psalmist is saying, even there in the midst of these battering waves, God remains as firm, as steady as that immovable crag. For God alone, oh my soul, waits in silence. This is a heart posture of trust. It's this heart posture that dominates all of Psalm 62. We can learn from this. This is a bold, stubborn, courageous, relentless display of trust in God alone. What justifies that? What justifies such a position, especially when so many of our circumstances around us scream that it's simply foolish? What about God makes this absolutely irreversibly true, like take it to the bank kind of true, that boosts our confidence and provides the foundation for our trust? What is it about God that makes him our rock? See, this is the right big question to be asking as we read this psalm. It's a question seeking to delve further into who God is. And this psalm is going to absolutely answer that underlying question. But not yet. First, the psalm wants to show us a second scenario. Where is all the first one? The first scenario, the first even though, there's the first one, that the psalmist modeled for us a trusting in God even though we face persistent attack to shake us. Now, while the first scenario showed us more of who God is through the onslaught of pain as a temptation to place our trust elsewhere, the second shows us more of who God is through the pull of something very different. The psalmist is going to again start by completely describing what our heart posture should be first before he gets to the scenario. So let's read it. Let's read the heart posture. See if this is any different than what we've been reading so far. Verses 7 through 8. On God rests my salvation and my glory. My mighty God, my mighty rock. My refuge is God. Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. This is the same heart posture, isn't it? It's repeated again. It's one of complete trust, but it developed even further what we read in verses 1 through 2 or verses uh, uh, 5 through 6. 
This is, this is, this is a, a, a picture of God as a firm place where the psalmist now rests his glory. It can be translated his high position, even though the attackers, remember, were trying to topple him from his high position. God here is a mighty rock or a powerful rock, even though his attackers are using powerful words to try to powerfully throw him down. Before God, the attackers have no leverage. They have no edge. They have no advantage. They have nothing in the face of the fortress, the mighty rock, the refuge that is the God of the universe for the people of his own. So the psalmist cries out for God. He says, cries out for all of us to now trust him at all times and to pour our hearts out before him. The imagery of pouring out your heart is like pouring out water from a bowl. It just, just flows. It's the same words that's used in the Old Testament of the blood being poured out in animal sacrifices. So catch this. Waiting for God in silence is not becoming mute before God and hiding our deepest, innermost thoughts and emotions from him. It doesn't mean sitting there and not communicating with God at all. Not even... Not even hiding those very uncomfortable thoughts and emotions and questions and doubt that intense, painful pressure can bring about. Does the idea of pouring out to God all that's inside of you right now, does it feel a little too risky? Hey, perhaps Christians are not supposed to feel what you feel or think what you're thinking. But the psalmist's guidance for you is to trust God with those things. Even as you silently wait for him, these are not two opposite things. Remember, this psalm's all about trusting God, your steady and movable refuge. He won't abandon you if you pour out your heart and out come some really messy and hard and twisted things. Trust him with those emotions, those thoughts, those questions, those doubts. God's your refuge, period. He isn't just your refuge when you have all the right thoughts and all the right emotions. He isn't your refuge only when times are good. He's your stable, consistent, reliable, not going anywhere kind of refuge at all times. That's our God. To drive the point home, the psalmist now turns to the second scenario. Let's read it, verses 9 through 10. Those of low estate are but a breath. Those of high estate are a delusion. In the balances, they go up. They are together lighter than a breath. Put no trust in extortion. Set no vain hopes on robbery. If riches increase, set not your heart on them. If the first scenario, verses 3 through 4, dealt with a temptation of pain's onslaught to trust in someone or something other than God, verses 9 through 10 now deal with the temptation of pleasure's pull. If the pain was the pounding waves to shake us, if that's the imagery, the pounding waves to shake us from our rock, Pleasure is now the powerful undertow of the ebbing ocean threatening to pull us from a rock and out to sea. So what's the pleasure here? It's the status in society and riches. They promise comfort and security and protection, don't they? But the psalmist sees right through it all and, and poetically warns us that they're all fleeting. They don't last. It's all temporary. It carries no weight. This is the, this is the visual. There's like one of those old scales, whatever's heavier, pushes down the heavier side. You stick all the rich and all the poor, all the status, all the riches of this world on one side, and you put air <laughs> on the other side, air is still heavier. Everything else is temporary. It has no weight to it. The promise of status or money are hollow. They're lighter than air, is what the psalmist is saying. How foolish it would be to trust in them. Air 
is more substantial. The point is made explicit in verse 10. Throughout the history of humanity, one of God's biggest rivals has been money, hasn't it? It's got a pull on us. And now the psalmist uses money to show us who God is. Who's the better provider, God or money? (laughs) What's the better rock? Which is more trustworthy? Man, our hearts fill the undertow of money, don't they? And all that money can promise us. And it's enough motivation for the attackers to even use extortion and to steal in order to get more of it. But the psalmist is saying, you don't do that. It's lighter than air. Do you feel the pull of money to win your trust? Do you, how about this? Do you find it way easier to trust in God when you also have a really solid bank account? A whole lot easier then, isn't it? Now, let's be clear. God absolutely uses money in our lives as a tool. But money's fickle. It's lighter than air. It comes and goes. Sometimes it really goes. Money is thoroughly untrustworthy. It's allure is strong, but it can't be trusted. There's no such thing as trusting money and trusting God at the same time. We can't trust both of these equally. Money is a tool. We don't trust it to save us, though. The psalmist clearly models for us trusting in God alone rather than money. This is the second even though scenario. It's the pull of money to steal our trust. We trust in God alone even though we face the persistent allure of riches to save us. We trust in God alone. So again, that question, what justifies this? What is it about God that justifies us trusting him in the midst of these two scenarios in the midst of whatever it is you're facing right now. Psalm 62 is now going to give us the because, the why, the essential, foundational, fundamental aspects of God's character that makes him our rock and our source of salvation. Let's read it, verses 11 through 12. Once God has spoken, twice have I heard this, that power belongs to God and that to you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love. For you will render to a man according to his work. Here, we have the ground for God's trustworthiness. In the form of wisdom literature, this reads a little bit like a proverb. Once God's spoken, twice have I heard this, the point's this. What the psalmist is about to say is really important. (laughs) So listen up. Here's the central lesson of Psalm 62. It's the two really, really important aspects of God's character, two aspects that run throughout this entire psalm, providing the ground for God being an unshakable refuge for us. It's the justification for why God can be trusted. God possesses both power and steadfast love. These are the two attributes of God we celebrated a couple weeks ago in Psalm 59, if you remember, if you were with us. It seems seems like these are pretty important, doesn't it? We trust in God alone because to him belong power and steadfast love. Think about this. What if God was all-powerful but did not show us steadfast love? We would have a God who's absolutely a rock, immovable, powerful. We have no confidence to believe that he's a rock for us. What if God was all-powerful but also malevolent? What if he exerted his power to crush us and not protect us? On the flip side, if God was full of steadfast love, but not all-powerful, then he'd be for us, yes. We have no confidence he could actually act on our behalf. He'd, 
He'd be more like an uh, empathetic onlooker or a well-meaning, weak well-wisher. That's all God would be. But the biblical, listen, the biblical God is neither of those. The biblical God possesses absolute, unlimited, uncontained, unmeasured, inexhaustible power, a power that knows no end and knows no rival. A magnificent power that is at the same time governed by a deep, loyal love that is steady, unchanging, unwavering, unflinching, unconditional, and unfading. A steadfast love that cannot be broken or lost. That love invariably dictates the all-powerful God's relationship with his people. It ceaselessly directs the infinite power of God for the good of his people and for his infinite glory. That is who God is. He can't be anything else. Perfect in power and steadfast love. And this is why he can be all that we read about here in Psalm 62. This is why we can be assured that as we face our own excruciating pain or the powerful pull of pleasure that our trust in the sovereign one of the universe is well-founded. This is true for the psalmist and it's true for us today. Think about this. This steadfast love and power of God that is celebrated here is the same power and steadfast love that found their ultimate expression in the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. This is what we celebrate every week. It's the same power and steadfast love. God placed his steadfast love on us, a people who chooses sin. <laughs> he places steadfast love on us when the Bible calls us dead in sin. The history of God's people all through the church from Abraham all the way up today is full of broken and weak and messy and sinful people, yet God didn't remove his love from us. It's not a threat he's going to at some point in the future. It's a love that's steadfast. Even to the point of God himself taking action so we could be in relationship with him forever. God's steadfast love is what sent Jesus to be incarnate in a messy and broken world. It's what sent Jesus to live a perfect life for us, to love us absolutely perfectly and to give up the glory that he enjoyed with the Father before he was incarnated. I think Sometimes it's difficult for us to understand what all Jesus gave up. It's the steadfast love of God that caused Jesus to suffer for our sin, to pay the penalty for our sin. He suffered for an undeserving people so we could be in relationship with him forever. That, my friends, is steadfast love. But that steadfast love would mean nothing if he wasn't also all-powerful. God's display of his power at the cross wasn't finished. After Jesus was literally dead for three days, he burst forth from the tomb, powerfully breaking the curse of sin and the stranglehold of death upon humanity, rising again, ensuring for us eternal life with the God whom all power and all steadfast love belong. That's the gospel. That's the power of God with the steadfast love of our God. This means that when we say God is our rock, when we say he's our fortress, our refuge, we are relying upon God's eternal power and steadfast love as an unchanging reality. Our claims that God's trustworthy find their grounding, their justification in the very unchanging nature of God himself. Everything else comes and goes. Pain and pleasure, Difficulties, successes come and go, but God cannot be at any time other than what he is forever. <laughs> That's a rock. 
The Bible's clear. God is all-powerful and full of steadfast love. So we can with confidence declare, he only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress shall not be shaken. My friends, if you're a believer, this is promises for you. If you're not a believer, if you don't know where you land in there, God's power for unbelievers is not displayed as protection, but will be displayed as wrath upon sin, and that's absolutely terrifying. This is because God is absolutely consistent with his character. He's just. Sin must be dealt with, and either Jesus is going to deal with that for you, or you're going to have to deal with that yourself, and that means eternal death if that's yourself. So if you got questions around that, if you're wrestling with that, I'd love to hear your story. I'd love to hear what's going on inside your heart, your head, and your heart. In Psalm 62, it actually ends with a not-so-subtle re, not so reminder of that God is just. He'll render to a man according to his work, it reads. The point is this. Where we put our trust has consequences for believers, for unbelievers. In other words, in classic wisdom literature style, pay attention to what was just written. It matters where you put your trust. Put your trust in God alone. The stakes are high. So what does it mean? I want to end with this. What does it mean to trust in God like this? The waiting for God in silence while in the midst of persistent pain or the lure of pleasure. It does not mean paralysis. It does not mean just sitting on our hands and and passively allowing things to run the course. It is possible to both plan and trust in God. (laughs) It's possible to both earn money and trust in God. It's possible to still go to a doctor and trust in God. It's possible to both rely on other people and trust God. I, I think this trust in part means that we must hold all of our plans, all of our wealth, all of our resources with an open hand. It's a recognition that we can't ultimately fix anything and that we are fully dependent upon God. So what does that look like? Well, trust is a deeply seated heart issue, but we can see some of the fruit of it, how it exhibits itself. Psalm 62 shows us some of those ways. Psalm 62 shows us that a trust in God looks like, exhibits as, stubbornly persisting, seeking salvation from the only one with perfect power and steadfast love, even as the pain pounds upon you again and again and again. This trust exhibits itself as a stubborn and persistent hope in the only one with perfect power and steadfast love, even as the allure of pleasure pulls at our hearts, And it exhibits itself as our cries out to God with all that we're wrestling through, all that we're feeling, and then trusting God with the results. My friends, listen to this. We're not born with that kind of trust described here in in Psalm 62. It's It's not in us naturally. We can't just manufacture it. It's the result of God's gracious work on our hearts over time. Only God's empowering grace can give us the kind of trust that waits for God in silence, trusting that he will only act yet again in ways consistent with his character. So what do we do? Where's the practical points? We pray. We plead with God that he would grow this trust in us. We surround ourselves with friends who can remind us of truth. We rehearse all the ways that God's been trustworthy in the past. 
We read Psalms like Psalm 62. Maybe we pray this psalm, and that's what happens. It simply becomes your prayer as it guides you and reminds you of who God is and what our appropriate heart posture should be before God. So I would actually like to end by reading Psalm 62 in its entirety. We kind of took it through chunks, but we lose some of the beauty of it. So if you're able, would you please stand? I'm going to read Psalm 62. I'm going to pray after that, and then you can be seated after I pray. Friends, remember, this is God's word to us. Let this soak in. For God alone, my soul waits in silence. From him comes my salvation. He alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be greatly shaken. How long will all of you attack a man to batter him like a leaning wall, a tottering fence? They only plan to thrust him down from his high position. They take pleasure in falsehood. They bless with their mouths, but inwardly they curse. For God alone, O my soul, waits in silence. For my hope is from him. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be shaken. On God rests my salvation and my glory, my mighty rock. My refuge is God. Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. Those of low estate are but a breath. Those of high estate are delusion. And the balances they go up, they are together lighter than a breath. Put no trust in extortions, that no vain hopes on robbery. If riches increase, set not your heart on them. Once God has spoken, twice have I heard this, that power belongs to God, and that to you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love, for you will render to a man according to his work. Let's pray. God, we believe that what you've preserved for us in Psalm 62 is true. And yet, there's parts of us that struggle to believe it. So I pray that your spirit would be at work in our hearts, showing us, convicting us, deepening our trust in you, our belief that you are all-powerful, our belief that you are full of steadfast love, that you are our rock as we face the pounding waves of pain. You're our rock as we feel the temptation, the lure of pleasure and riches to pull us away. Would you, would you by your grace, anchor us even more firmly? I know this is something the blacks are praying for, and it's something you've been answering, that their faith remains and it's growing. We need, we need this as well. I thank you for how you have have once and for all time, the most spectacular way, displayed your power and your steadfast love in and through the work of Jesus. You do that because you love us, and it was a display of strength like, like we've never known. And so we're, we're thankful. We're, th- we're thankful. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.